Hi, I'm Brian Lay. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Fisher. And this is the Diversify Our Narrative podcast. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm Elizabeth. And we're really excited for this episode of the season, which is on textbooks. And how, what's your history with textbooks? Like, did you love your textbooks in elementary school or did you really not like think about them? I didn't think about them much. I wouldn't say that I loved my textbooks. They were kind of just an existing force in my education. Um, I think I thought of textbooks as like this source of information that was like unquestionable. It was just, those were the facts and everything in them was correct. I never questioned textbooks, really. I wish I did though. What about you? Yeah, pretty much same. The only thing I remember from... Uh, like public education textbooks where like I had to get textbook covers um, to cover my textbook when I'm like transporting them between classes but I never took them out of the classroom and I also regarded them as like this this unbiased text um, but little did we know it's just written by some people at a publishing company trying to make money Right. There's a lot going on behind the scenes with textbooks. I totally forgot about the book cover things. I do remember (laughs) that. Those are very satisfying to touch. And I was always very invested in what color I was getting, how cool Mm -hmm. mine looked in comparison to other people's. That's so funny. Yeah. I would get matching sets, but it was dumb because if they were all the same color, I didn't know what textbook it was until I had to open it. Oh, my God. So like I (laughs) I would reach for like a social studies book and it was the science book. That's so funny. But at least you had like this aesthetic going for you. I know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So textbooks are a really like given staple of our education. Like we really take them for granted. And I think it's overlooked about like like how much of a grip they have on our curriculum. But like students use them outside and inside classrooms and teachers plan lesson plans around them. Uh, but what does this like really mean for our education system? Yeah, I think they're accepted really as like a status quo. Um, And like I was saying, I never questioned what the sources were behind them or like the anything that was going on behind them. I was a kid, granted. Um, But I think that I can't really imagine like an education without having some sort of textbook. Not that I use them in all my classes, but um, yeah, they just seem to be a staple. What about you? Yeah, it's crazy just like, just like how much information they're like condensing and then trying to make palpable for students. Like I got like even in like fourth grade history courses, they're still like condensing like all of US history into like digestible words for kids. And that's like a really big task. So I don't know. Textbooks have a lot to do. And so there's more room for error. And I think that's what we're going to talk a lot about in this episode. For sure. Um, A survey in regards to American history classes from the National Assessment of Education Progress showed that 45% of 8th graders read from textbooks almost daily, and that trend stays consistent through 12th grade, in which 44% of the students reported reading about every day. Does that seem accurate to you? Would you say that speaks kind of to your experience? Yeah, that's totally, totally true. Even if, like, I wasn't explicitly reading off textbooks. I definitely had uh, work like around it and um, nearly half of student class time uh, was spent using textbooks. And so studies really show that like 80 to 90 percent of classroom and homework assignments are textbook driven or like textbook centered, especially in like history and social studies teachers, maybe less so in in um, math and science and English, but but also definitely still in those. And like as a result of that, And a bunch of other reasons like, you know, there's the teacher shortage, there's a sort of a lack of training or under training teachers, Um, pedagogy and curriculum have become really standardized and prepackaged through textbooks. And also like teachers get evaluated on how like how well they like teach according to the textbook. So it's just a cycle that puts textbooks in a lot more power than perhaps the teachers themselves. Right. And I think like from a student's perspective, you're thinking about how you interact with the textbook, but there's a lot more that's happening with the textbook on behalf of the teacher. So even if you're not using the textbooks every day in classes, the teachers are often using them to create lesson plans or to just figure out how to implement curriculum. 
So ultimately, textbooks are a means used by teachers to implement that curriculum. And like we were saying earlier, any system that attempts to teach such vast subjects in the span of a year or however long these courses are, there's going to be flaws there because there's going to be information that's amiss. And maybe it's not flaws per se, although those certainly exist, but it's just a lot of information that are lacking from textbooks because logistically speaking, like you can only fit so much in a textbook. So I think that's where like supplementary materials, which we'll talk about later, is necessary and comes into play. Also, textbooks kind of lack the flexibility to work with students of different learning, like that have different learning styles or maybe Mm -hmm. are at different levels of learning. So that's another way that they don't necessarily address not only all the information that should be taught, but all the students and where they're at in terms of learning in the classroom. So critics will also, critics of textbooks will note that they fail to incorporate new principles of learning. So they're not necessarily an innovative tool because of how long they've existed and they kind of maintain the status that they've had forever. Um, And they don't really push like a new methodology around teaching. So I think our education system, for so many different reasons, some of which you were mentioning, but has stayed largely the same because of teachers' reliance and largely students, teachers, and um, school districts' reliance on textbooks to kind of get the job done or at least guide guide our way through education. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a much bigger issue than just like the education system. It's like just a complete lack of funding and underappreciation overall. But let's quickly go through just a brief history of textbooks. Um, Textbooks have been used since forever. Like the earliest I could find was they were being used to teach grammar and writing in uh, Latin. And this was mostly for the affluent. But then after the creation of the printing press, then textbooks started to be a lot more available for dissemination. Yeah, that makes sense because the printing press would have made things cheaper. So they're more accessible for more people. Um, But for hundreds of years, textbooks, or even a thousand years, textbooks were uniform across grade levels. So they're often just used for memorization. And our education system began to adopt and rely on them more heavily to aid untrained teachers, especially those who are in like rural areas who don't have access to, you know, communication with other teachers or different resources like that. Yeah, that's right. And during colonization times, This was kind of when textbooks were starting to be presented as new historical facts from the colonizers to the colonized. And it really challenged the local histories and the local religions and beliefs of those regions, like like the American colonies, for example. Um, When they started to push back against like all of the textbooks being sent to them, they began to rewrite textbooks after the fact, like after the Revolutionary War. And they would paint the heroes as the Americans and the villains as the British, but they would also erase things like how much harm they were doing to indigenous people, um, even rewriting, even adding like the manifest destiny as like this, I don't know, this this thing that like was driving us to move westward. I always wonder what textbooks in like Britain or in, in Europe say about the Revolutionary War in America. Like I feel like it's just like a blip on the <laughs> radar in those textbooks where it's it's like the fundamental foundation of our country. So yeah, um, I always just am curious. I'd really be interested in reading a textbook that has a total different like point of view on the Revolutionary War. I bet it's just like a list of like, these are all the countries that we used to colonize. <laughs> and it's just like a laundry list of like 100 countries that are like, <laughs> and now we don't. Yeah, no details there. Um, a particular inflection point for textbooks in the United States was the Civil War. And that's when textbooks really began to diverge from reality, especially in the Confederacy. Teachers taught students to sing Dixie and memorize long list of forgettable governors. The Civil War battles were described in detail and textbooks celebrated the violent overthrow of democratically elected multiracial governments. Lynching went unmentioned in these textbooks and the evils of slavery got barely mentioned or were quickly dismissed, if at all talked about, yeah. Yeah, which is terrible. And um, obviously after the Civil War, it was bad, but especially during the Civil Rights Movement, it began to sort of compound a lot of this. And uh, around that time as well, 
was the Cold War. So in the 50s and 60s, states like Texas and California began to push for textbook accuracy, quote unquote, to be judged more on American values than on evidence. So that was a reaction to the Red Scare. And it was also the first wave of censorship, you know. So um, basically, they would say whether or not this should go in a textbook is what is not dependent on if it's accurate or if like there's a lot or if it's like impactful, but rather if it's like about, you know, capitalism and it's demeaning to uh, naysayers and stuff like that. Um, but later on in the 70s, liberal and conservative groups grew in opposition by a lot. And the left started to push for multiculturalism and inclusion in textbooks. And the right, which, you know, they thought it was an unrest due to straying away from Christian values. They were leading the push for uh, keeping Christianity in textbooks. Yeah, that's interesting about the the kind of political propaganda that's being mm-hmm. infiltrating our education and textbooks. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious when you when you say it like that, especially in relation to the Cold War and the Red Scare. Um, the second wave of censorship occurred in the 1980s at the climax when there was critiques from both sides, as Brian was just mentioning. Textbook publishers had to oblige to both sides because they needed to sell the textbooks. Um, so that self-censorship and compromises and a trying to appease both the left and the right and not really doing either well, but trying mm-hmm. to kind of make some like meet in the middle neutral situation really distorted history. And um, this, I mean, this makes sense because history is an inherently political subject. There's other subjects in which problems arise also like in science, but history definitely is something I think that we'll like focus on the most in this podcast just because of how political it can be and how distorted it can be and the effects that it has on so many different groups of people and just our notion and understanding of the history of the United States. Yeah. Yeah, and then quickly jumping to sort of where we are now, which is the 2000s-ish, the textbook market has changed. It shifted from, as we've you know talked about, a memorization book with a bunch of facts that you kind of needed to understand and you needed to memorize. And now it's more of a comprehensive package where you have practice books, you have audio and visual guidance, and you have uh, lesson plan books for teachers. And it's a big, big thing. Um, but if we look at the textbook industry as a business, which it is, rather than a means to just educate people, it becomes really clear the different influences that textbook publishers really have to succumb to, like government regulations, adoption boards, and special interest groups. And a lot of this is steeped in the textbook adoption policies that exist. So there's two major types of adoption policies regarding textbooks. And um, there's 30 states. So the first one, the 30 states as of 2018, these are known as free territory states, which have no statewide adoption policies. Textbook purchases are done and decided on at a local level by local school boards or even individual schools. And the scenario is closest to like a free market, competitive, unregulated situation, um, very decentralized. But Mm -hmm. that market cannot operate freely because of the existing adoption policies in the 20 other states, which are called adoption states. And in these states, officials at the state government level establish standards and set up evaluation committees to select textbooks for statewide adoption. So the requirements and the standards set by these states influence what is in or what is left out of textbooks sold throughout the whole country, affecting the choices in the free territory states and making them irrelevant, really, um, in the textbook publishing industry because textbooks are ultimately catering to the states that are creating this like laundry list of criteria or are the ones choosing the books. That's why the free territory states get left out of the equation um, if they're not the ones that are defining what is in and out of the textbooks. So even though free territory states are have a large population, such as like New York and Ohio and Pennsylvania, they often get out, left out of, or they are left out entirely of the equation um, in textbook publishing. Right, because if there's so many textbooks out there, those states are definitely, like there's a very small chance those free territory states are going to pick your textbook. So you might as well try and target 
people that are going to require all school districts to buy your textbook. Like right. it's such a such a difficult market to continue to exist in. Right, especially when you have extremely dominant, powerful forces. Do you want to talk about the three states that have a hold on this adoption system? Oh, yeah, I do. Uh, so among the adoption states, California, Florida, and Texas has mm-hmm. a have a disproportionate influence on textbook publishers due to their large school populations. And basically, it just means that these states really have the upper hand in determining what is published and, you know, what is not published in textbooks. Yeah, but even within these three states, the power is not equal. Um, Texas yields the most power because although it has fewer students in California, it spends more money and allocates a dedicated chunk of funds to be spent specifically for textbooks. Also, California, for some reason, has a weird system in which it's a adoption state K through eight, but it's um, it's a free territory state nine through 12. So it's kind of split mm-hmm. in half. So maybe it does have a smaller population than Texas in that way. But Texas is definitely like the almighty powerful in terms of who t- textbook publishing companies are looking to um, in order to sell their products or the textbooks. Uh, but Brian, you're from Texas, so uh, not am. that you would be the expert on this subject, but I am wondering if you had any idea about this. You know, I okay, I knew a bit about it, um, not while going to school in Texas, but after the fact, because the textbook review board in Texas is such a such a big controversial thing, and I definitely heard more about it as I got into some more activism and organizing spaces because they've been doing a lot of weird pushes with like creationism and evangelical Christianity these past few years. But no, I mean, as like a student, I did not really know like everyone read the same books, basically. Right. You also brought up, I think, in a conversation we were having about how Common Core was not a thing in Texas. However, it was a thing for so many other states, like we were talking about in the last episode and yet textbook has this hold on t- textbook publishing, which kind of, I feel like, undermines Common Core in a lot of ways. I, I know that Common yeah. Core is not necessarily curriculum that you would find in textbooks, but I feel like, I don't know, there's definitely a disconnect there. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the the biggest publishers are like, okay, we have to oblige by the learning outcomes of the Common Core, but they're not our biggest buyer, Texas is. So, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, So so what's the selection process like for adoption states? For adoption states, the selection process kind of occurs at two levels. So there's what's going on at the state level, and then it happens at the local level. So first, there's a screening of a basic pool of books that's selected from many different contenders. And then based on the criteria established by the states or school districts, um, they're the state level selection committee adopts certain books from that list of books that have passed the screening. And the criteria established has to do with what the people on the committee find politically and socially and culturally sensitive, which I think like is very objective. It's these human beings Mm -hmm. making these decisions. And then also if the textbook delivers curriculum in the manner that, um, would be most effective, I guess, in the opinion of the people on the committee for t- students, for teachers to deliver to students. And then the local part happens in which schools decide on which books they will actu- actually purchase from the approved list of books. So at the state, they approve this list of books. And then at the local level, they choose books from that approved list. Yeah, it's not completely um, centralized, but you know, in this way, Adoption committees act as representatives of the state, even though they're independent. So with this, like, it's really no surprise that they have become so politicized in so many instances, because in practice, the educational will of the state becomes the will of a closed circle of bureaucrats who exercise their own preferences on behalf of the state. And we see this influence go beyond borders um, as you know, like I've seen the influence of Texas textbooks go span like most of the southeast of the U.S. Yeah. So basically, like the free territory states are operating on the second level, that local model that I was saying, but they don't have 
this list of approved books to choose from, but they might as well. Like the books that they're choosing mm-hmm. from are the books that the publishers have made to please adoption states. So it might as well be an approved list from an adoption state, likely the more powerful adoption states. Yeah. And because of the influence that they have, these committees have become the target for like vigorous lobbying by a lot of special interest groups representing you know, political extremes who seek to express or impose their views about the contents of the textbook. Yeah, I mean, it gets it gets tricky. And I feel like the the different special interest groups, I mean, there's various ones that are coming into play, definitely like political. And I think also something that's really important is like religious points of view that people really mm-hmm. want to include in textbooks and feel like it's part of, um, I don't know, like it's very important to teach about religious points of view in America. However, obviously, there's a separation of church and state. So it gets really complicated. I also think that there's special interest groups that are vying for testing and the college board. I mean, I'm not sure yeah. exactly, but it would make sense to me because of how big those industries are. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about it, I'm sure like, you know, if there are a lot of interest groups that are pushing a more um, harmful agenda, then there is also political groups that are trying to help a lot. And the way I see this is in a lot of math textbooks now, especially for primary and secondary education um like multiplication i guess for example like the way we learned it was it was two digits on top of each other and you you know you just like multiplied one at a time and carried numbers and added but we never knew why and in a lot of math textbooks now students are learning different ways to do multiplication they learn that way sure they also learn like Um, block multiplication they learn how to separate things into base 10 they learn how to do a bunch of things that makes it it, that that like allows them to be like okay i'm going to do mental math and 23 times 43 is easier to be done as splitting up like (laughs) 20 and 3 and 40 and 3 and that's easier to do than like the way we learned it so i feel like math has become a lot more accessible to people with different learning styles and it has encouraged a lot more critical thinking than the way we learn math. Yeah, well, I feel like the different, like, whoever is either lobbying or whoever is on these committees, I mean, they hold a lot of power in terms of, like, quite honestly, determining how we think. And in this yeah. math instance or example that you're using, it's so crazy. And obviously, maybe not all kids of the next generation or the generation after us, the generation right now learning this way not all of them are going to necessarily pick up on that exact way of learning. But if that's how that generation of kids were educated in terms of math and we were in a totally different way, like just the, just the gap in terms of, and I think of math, like no, you're, if you get the answer, you get the answer, I guess, in my opinion, it doesn't necessarily matter the route and how you get there, but just the way, like just our different ways that our brains will work determined on, the committees and the people in charge of making these decisions. Yeah, it is crazy. And maybe let's talk a bit about the people and the power of like this game that is the textbook industry. So there are three really big publishers, Pearson, McGraw-Hill, and uh, Hofton Mifflin are the three biggest ones. And they've probably made a bunch of your textbook throughout your life. They've been in power for a long time and they'll continue to just because of contracts they have with state departments and school districts. But beyond the three of them, like we said, Texas really holds the most power in the game. Yeah, Texas serves 5.5 million students and the Texas Review Board buys textbooks for every school, which is basically hundreds of millions of dollars for textbook publishers. Because of this, publishers are bound to the board's values. And not only are they bound, but this means that other states are likely to buy the same textbooks as Texas did, as we were mentioning before. So not only are the publishers bound, but through that, the whole country kind of gets wrapped up into it as well. Yeah, for sure. And I have an example that I thought was just it was crazy. So uh, this was from a New York Times article. And Kobe Burr, who is a freshman at a suburban high school in Houston, He was reading a textbook for his geography class. And on page 126 of this book, the section referred to enslaved Africans as workers and immigrants. 
uh, all the way from like the 1500s to the 1800s. But like ironically in the same book, maybe not ironically, like purposefully in the same book, they described Europeans coming to America as indentured slaves, even though they never called um, enslaved, like actual enslaved people as slaves. So that was crazy. And then like one of the quotes was like, um, the Atlantic slave trade between the 1500s and the 1800s brought millions of workers from Africa to the Southern United States to work on agricultural plantations. And it just seems really, it just seems really like pleasant. I don't know. It, it was, it was not the way I would ever describe the slave trade. And that textbook was published by McGraw Hill, uh, who is one of America's top public publishers. And in 2012, there were a hundred more than a hundred thousand copies of this textbook in the hands of textbook school districts and most likely beyond like around the U.S. Southeast, which is a crazy amount of textbooks to be describing the slave trade as immigration. Right. In another case, a large creationist group protested and lobbied to challenge evolution in biology textbooks as a means to, at least they, like in quotes, promote critical thinking. Um, there was They were successful in challenging the learning standards, and the governor, Rick Perry, said uh, as a part of his election, um, Texas will teach both creationism and evolutionism in our public schools. I really love how they like like how like critical thinking has been co-opted to consider these I know. two points of views as if they hold <laughs> like equal weight. That's really funny to me. Yeah. It I mean it's it's crazy. And you know, well I think what's crazier is like the board is composed of 15 members and five of them are Democrats but 10 of them are Republicans. So it's not even like equal playing ground politically and uh, they are both public officials and regular everyday people. Um, but I feel like a lot of these members lack any public school teaching experience. Like a lot of them aren't teachers usually. And bringing in academics and professors to make textbooks as factually accurate as possible has been repeatedly refuted because, um, and this is a quote from a Dallas Tribune article, Basically, they don't want to send a message that they feel the college people, college people are more important and that people are concerned about like pointy headed liberals in the ivory tower making their process worse. Yeah, there was some minimal changes made to the Texas Review, Texas Review Board textbook review process. However, mm -hmm. that was they're very minimal and they kind of just like scrape the scrape the very top of the issue that was in response to the Kobe Burr instance or example that you had mentioned before. Yeah. Um, so the board did not. Oh, so the board did approve uh, increasing public participation in the process and holding publishers accountable for errors like uh, I have McGraw Hill uh, was on the hook for <laughs> was off the hook and they were like stickering the offensive passage in that 800 page textbook um or they were replacing the book altogether but it's just crazy that they were like trying to put a sticker on top of it um at the same meeting that that was decided in a close eight to seven vote the texas state board of education rejected a proposed amendment that would have encouraged an expert panel of ac academics to be charged with catching these for inaccuracies and omissions yeah. And as you were saying, the, the review board consists of mostly citizen volunteers, some of them who are teachers, so are involved in the education system. And mm -hmm. other people might be parents who want to be involved or could be someone that's like looking to run for elected office. And this is a good way to get their name out there, at least in terms of being involved in the government in some volunteer way. And I think like going back to what you had said about not wanting a review board of people to of academics i guess people with phds in history say overview the books i think that speaks a lot to the quote that you had said of like not wanting elitism i suppose or this conception of academic elitism to kind of infiltrate the textbook creation process and i, I don't know if now's like a time to talk about elitism in academia, which I mean, certainly exists. However, I think there's a big difference between 
having an average citizen look over textbooks for heirs versus someone who has a PhD in history. Yeah, I agree. So in context to College Board and AP classes, there are definitely instances of conflict uh, between like what you're expected to know for an AP exam and the learning outcomes of the course and the state's politics. So Oklahoma recently had a case where uh, the changes to U.S. history that College Board made were in such opposition to their cons- to the Oklahoma conservative leaders that the state tried to ban AP U.S. history altogether. Yeah, the changes included a number of things that would examine like the history of the United States more critically than before. Um, though still, we don't know necessarily how how critically um, or if that would be necessarily like enough. Um, I guess in like our standards or maybe Don's standards, but right. some changes were um, were made and they like amidst like the founding fathers, such as George Washington. Others were more explicit, um, such as um, guidance on the extent of the impact of slavery and colonization in Europe, America, and Africa, along with U.S. imperialism later on. Yeah. So the changes um, came from and were defended by historians. However, the Republican National Committee said that the framework presents a biased and inaccurate view of many important events in American history. Yeah, I feel like that's a running trend that we've seen a lot today. Um, and it's I think it's just a great transition into conversation about credibility and censorship. Um, so right now, with the teacher shortage extreme polarization and of course the internet it's really it's you can imagine like how different of a platform textbooks have now censorship is still as present as ever maybe more so or i mean maybe it's just because we have access to information now because of the internet and you know we've talked about some cases of censorship earlier like um adding creationism and slavery and censoring other parts that are counter to that. But here's some more cases that we came across. And um, the first one that I chose, I feel like in in my understanding of U.S. history in eighth grade and um, high school was that the American Revolution was all about no taxation without representation. And it was pushed on me that it was just because we were paying an absurd amount of taxes, um, yada, 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 and they didn't have anyone, and they were just like going broke because of Great Britain. Um, But really, primary sources indicate that uh, the taxes were around 26 shillings a year, and in the colonies, it was reduced to one shilling a year. And a shilling a year, I mean, that's like $360 today for the whole year. The only tax they really had to pay was the tea tax, but they were good on everything else because Great Britain was like, "Ugh, okay, fine, Americans. Jeez, you're complaining so much. I just won't charge you taxes, but at least pay taxes on tea. And then Americans were still like, no, $360 of US dollars today is too much. Um, And I just feel like that really trivializes the Boston Tea Party. No, I think that's funny. And like this came up before just about how the no taxation without representation. I've heard that a thousand times. I feel like I still Mm -hmm. hear that. I think that's still kind of something people want to latch on to and not wanting to pay taxes. But I think the no taxation part gets emphasized over the without representation (laughs) part. And I think that maybe if there was a broader explanation on terms of like, why exactly? Like taxation, if you're not going to have, you know, a say in like parliament or what's going on in like a country that has like in charge of you, that that seems like the route in which like we fought a revolution as opposed to the taxation. But definitely, I think like the tea tax and the Boston Tea Party was highlighted or sensationalized in my education. And I, I like I mean, I wasn't there. Like maybe it was like a sensational event. But um, like I wish I was there, honestly. But I, I, I wish that there was like a deeper explanation of like, you know, the colonization and like without representation, because I also feel like this. This comes up a lot today. I know that you've mentioned like with voter suppression, like I do think that that's exactly it. It's like without representation, why would we pay taxes? Why would we support a government that's not going to like hear our voices in a democratic way? Yeah, it's just, it's very deliberate that we're focusing on the no taxation part because that's what 
a lot of uh, people pro uh, small government are pushing for is they hate paying taxes, but they very much silence the representation thing because then they would have to acknowledge what they're doing right now like has a lot of um, misrepresentation in our government. But yeah, the second example, and this is less of an example and more of a broad concept, but like Asian American history was not taught in my education. Like I don't know a single thing about it other than Japanese internment. Um, and one of Don's leading initiatives that was highlighted during May was like the push for Asian American history to be told in classrooms. And it's just a huge missing piece of the puzzle like we never learned that like Chinese immigrants were lynched and massacred. Vietnamese refugees were hunted by the KKK. Um, Japanese families were evicted and put under surveillance uh, post internment. Like the list goes on and on. And it's just, it's such a huge thing that we never learn about um, because America hates disclosing its flaws. Right. I think that that gets to the root of it to speak on like the violence committed against different groups of people in our country is not something that I think that Americans are good at at large. So, um, yeah, I mean, especially in education, and it's just so unfortunate. I mean, obviously, all of these events, learning about them in school would be really challenging and really emotional, but, like, so deeply necessary to preventing situations like that from happening in the future, just acknowledging the truth, like, acknowledging what is going on in the country's history as opposed to ellipsing them and just kind of bearing the stories. That's really what it is. It's really like a deep burial of stories. Yeah. And then my last example is Thomas Edison. Um, I, I didn't want to choose another one because another one that was uh, very serious because there's so many to choose from. Um, and if you want something more serious, definitely check out A People's History of the U.S. by Howard Zinn. That was in the news a lot when Trump tried to ban that textbook um, or or uh, lies my teacher told me uh, which is also a great book but yeah Thomas Edison is widely revered as the inventor of the light bulb and on Wikipedia he's called perhaps the world's greatest inventor um, but long story short he was not like a super innovative inventor he was like a pesky patent person um, and he just patented like a bunch of things that other people invented and then he took their credit um, and then everyone gives him credit for making the light bulb when in fact he just like stole the patent and then charged people and sued people for a bunch of money if they tried to claim that they invented it, which they probably did. Oh, that's crazy. Did you, do you know who made the light bulb? Did you find I'm gonna out? Look it up. I'm going to look it up real quick right now. <laughs> the person that actually invented the light bulb was, and this is from a quick Google search, so this could be wrong with some <laughs> further investigating, but it was an English chemist, uh, or an English, yeah, a British chemist named Warren de la Rue, um, and another British chemist, Joseph Swan, also um, actually like made it a thing, but I'm sure with further digging, it's going to be someone that's not from England. Um, but yeah, it was not Thomas Edison. <laughs> Yeah, I think like some examples of censorship that are maybe most common to us is book banning, because I think that that's like a very obvious way um, to see when something is being censored, if it's straight up banned. I think another form of censorship, like we were just mentioning, is discluding information from books, but you can't really notice that if you don't have like your eye out for it. The information's just not there. Like you can't know what you don't know. But with book banning, that's pretty like forthright and outright. Um, and book banning has existed into the farthest reaches of literary history. Uh, Socrates was charged in 399 BC for corrupting the minds of the youth. So his works were assumingly banned um, until the invention of the printing press in 1450. Burning literature effectively halted the spread of books, which when I first found that out blew my mind. I think that's kind of cool <laughs> but like also so devastating for so like i really want to watch a movie in which like someone's work that they worked on for their whole life like this book that's going to change the world is burned and the just the devastation that would come up i really need to see this happen like acted out in front of me um yeah However, the ability to print became cheaper with the printing press um so with that 
there became licensing laws in order to halt the spread of information. And the English monarchy of Henry VIII, as well as the Roman Catholic Church, used these licensing laws a lot and went out went about a bunch of different ways to censor information. Yeah, totally. And in uh, 1982, the landmark case of uh, Board of Education Island Trees School District versus Pico found that school officials could not remove library material because they disagreed with the ideas of it. So basically saying, you know, in schools at least, you can't really ban books um, from the library. You could ban it from curriculum, but you can't actually burn it from a, uh, ban it from a school library um, by law. However, um, to this day, hundreds of people file complaints with libraries each year to remove certain books because they're trying to exercise their right of expression. And uh, although the initial decision for complying with such a request lies with the individual libraries, um, the higher courts, I mean, they will just always emphasize the First Amendment. There's no way you can legally ban a book from a library. Yeah, yeah. First Amendment protection. I think that comes up a lot and that always comes up with censorship in terms of licensing laws too. We, I, I'm studying journalism in school and we definitely talk about these licensing laws in, in a historical perspective of journalism. And I think it's interesting like with the different technologies that come about throughout history, the different ways that people that like the technology, such as the printing press, I guess that's a good example. But now even with the internet, um, just the different routes in which politicians or people of higher power go about stopping the spread of information. So as new technologies are created that kind of democratize information, like make it more public to more groups of people, they're more, there will be efforts to censor that and in different ways. Like it used to just be book burning, which seems yeah. <laughs> pretty easy. And now... There's so many different ways to censor information, especially with online platforms as well. And the First Amendment protection gets evoked a lot in all of this. But some examples of commonly banned books, a lot that we've all heard before, is To Kill a Mockingbird. That is one that has been banned or at least tried to be banned many of times. I am very familiar with this book. Brian, you read this. I read it in 10th grade. I, I really liked it. And I always hear it's like the number one most banned book in school districts, but everyone I know has read it. So, but I also am probably in a certain population that reads To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, I think that I think that this was probably a lot more problematic when it was written as opposed to now. I think now it's like a way to teach about that history. And there are definitely, like, there's a lot of, like, flaws and misgivings within the book, and, like, it needs to be taught in the right way. I enjoyed Mm -hmm. it as well, but I can definitely see it being an incredibly political and problematic book when it was published and written, and that is probably the time in which it was banned the most. But it's funny that now it's kind of, like, all over. Yeah, I read it, and it's a very famous book. I actually saw the the Broadway play for that book. It was amazing. It was incredible. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I we had to watch that for English in the theater class. Yeah, oh yeah. And then there's also the movie. There's also the movie with who's the who's the actor in that movie? I can't remember. Such a good looking guy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and then another example is in nineteen eighty four, which I have not read. I read Animal Farm, which is um mm. the kind of a similar book, but you had read this one as well. Yeah, nineteen eighty four. Uh, looking back, I don't think it was actually required reading, but it was um an optional reading after we read Animal Farm. They gave us like a choice of six books. Um I read nineteen eighty four and I read Catcher in the Rye. And I ended up doing my paper on Catcher in the Rye. But I love 1984, um, and I hate Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> <laughs> and then Anne Frank, The Diary of a Young Girl. You said you read this in the fourth grade. Is that right? I did. Yeah. I, I So we were part of um, basically a gifted and talented program in elementary school. And when I went to that program, they literally made us read this like horrifying uh, count of events of like, being a Jewish person in the Holocaust. And it was the first time I ever like really learned about the Holocaust and genocide. And it was a heavy book for 10 year olds. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, fourth grade seems like a very happy time to introduce this book. And I also, I'm like, I'm curious about your personal experience with it, but then I'm thinking about it being banned as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wonder really like the reasons why. I mean, obviously, like, it seems like, um, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's obviously like religious and political sentiment, but I also wonder if it's like the violence and or just the violence and kind of the the genocide being taught at such a young age, that could also be a reason in which parents or educators or anyone wanted to ban the book. But I think like it also comes down to um, just notions of history and religion at the end of the day. Yeah, uh, a lot of books get banned for overtly sexual content, but I really can't think of a reason that like Anne Frank or 1984, I guess I could see 1984, but both of them are very anti-fascist books and you would think America touting its anti-fascism narrative would be into that but I guess they're just trying to hide certain tactics that they use uh, secretly so I don't know yeah interesting you had mentioned how 1984 was very reminiscent of like the last like presidency or like last four years and became uh, political issue. I have to read that. I'm very interested. Yeah, I'm kind of bummed that I haven't read it yet. I'll get on it for sure. Yeah, it's a quick and easy read. Okay, perfect. So I definitely recommend. Okay, so I mean, that was a lot, right? I think we can do some closing thoughts of just like, um, who exactly is being protected and being hurt in the textbook industry right now. I think like bringing in a current event would be a good way to speak to this. There's something going on. I mean, we've talked about Texas a lot and there's something going on within the state of Texas. There's a bill that is working its way through the Texas Senate. I'm not exactly sure what stage it's at right now. And I don't know where it will be once this podcast is out, but the the, it's Texas HB 3979 and it is trying to limit teachers ability to talk about or essentially ban teachers ability to talk about race or privilege or white supremacy in classrooms and it's a super trickily written bill i don't trickily i'm mm-hmm. not even sure if that's a word but it's a it's a because it doesn't say outright that race cannot be talked about and it does nece- it does necessitate the fact that no teacher is to speak on one race being inherently better than the other. I feel like that's pretty obvious, and I don't know if that necessarily needs to be put into law, but maybe it does. Who knows? But it also talks about how, like, no race can be, you know, targeted or blamed for maybe, like, another, like, like white supremacy or white privilege can't be also talked about and recognized. And I think that that is super unfortunate, and that also misses on so many points in history in which and today in which that is quite clearly like the case and defies defines so much of our history so that's something that's happening right now in texas and it doesn't necessarily affect the textbook industry but i do wonder if this bill is signed is signed by the governor i wonder how it will affect what's published in textbooks because then the people that are on the state review board will be, you know, fitting the criteria that this bill kind of lays out as well and that those textbooks will then be kind of spread around the country. So I think like in terms of who is being hurt and who's being affected, this really speaks to it. It's the people that are being protected are those who don't want to acknowledge white privilege or how whiteness has really affected the United States as well as they are harming the people who have been harmed by by those things. Right, for sure. I know a, a bunch of my teachers that I know are livid about this um, really getting as far as it has in such quick time and how likely it is to, to pass. And we've already seen examples of like dismissing slavery and very bad stuff. But now this is like just further justification of like oh yeah white privilege doesn't exist because no race is better than the other and you could you know in theory no race should be better than the other however comma that's just not how things are right now and not talking about it is completely disregarding and hurting a lot of people um so yeah i I totally agree. I think it's just, it's really trying to maintain the status quo. 
Right. And it's it's perpetuating exactly what it's like a missing from the textbooks. It's yeah. not bringing things to light um, will essentially perpetuate them because people aren't being educated on them. And it's just very untruthful. I was talking to a friend the other night who had just watched the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, which is an incredible film. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's about the uh, the back the Black Panther Party and mm-hmm. the the ways in which the government goes to ultimately end the Black Panther Party and its movement, yeah. and that is something that and we've talked about this before. That is something that was so so first of all completely like not talked about is the. I mean, we talked about the Black Panther Party, but the ways that we talked about it was it was like a violent group and that was the end of that and it was a bad thing and that's how I learned about it. And I think that that's like such an example of an incredible historical group in our country being totally distorted in U.S. history books. And it just, it made me think of that the other night when I was talking to my friend and she said, I feel like if we learned about this stuff in school the world would be a fundamentally different place. And I totally agree. If the story that was told in Judas and the Black Messiah was involved in the history books, I think that students of the generations following would come out of U.S. history with a total different perspective of the nation and of what's going on. And a lot of things that happen today would potentially not be happening or people would be far more educated on them. And it's really unfortunate that textbooks... I mean, you could say in the name of synthesizing information, don't include those stories, but obviously there's like something larger going on. And I think it it starts with the government truly trying to end the Black Panther Party. And it continues on to today in terms of not including it in the education system. Yeah, I mean, I would love to do a whole episode on it. It doesn't fit in the season, but I mean, everything that I've learned about the Black Panther Party is amazing. Like there are 10 decrees their lunch programs and their um, funding programs and education programs. It's amazing. But but yeah, I totally agree. Um, what are some alternative approaches to textbooks or, or ways that we could improve this system? Yeah, I mean, I alternative approaches, I don't I don't see textbooks going away anytime soon. I don't think that this podcast is gonna end the textbook industry. And I honestly don't even know <laughs> If it necessarily should, but I think that I think that supplementary information, and I know teachers already do this, but should be emphasized a lot more because this whole time we've been talking about the big gaps that exist within textbooks, and there's plenty of resources out there that can be brought in to fill in those gaps. I also think another way to look at textbooks is to read them with a critical view, not read them as if they're coming from, you know, some some higher power that has all of the answers like read them as if a person or a group of people are writing them there's going to be flaws there's going to be information left out so to use them as a tool for critical thinking i think would be a really cool alternative approach to the use of textbooks as they exist in classrooms today what about you any ideas brian (laughs) no i i totally agree with everything you're saying and honestly i mean my thought is i don't even really think we need textbooks i think I think a like uh, teaching as a collective would be amazing. I know teachers have networks of sharing lesson plans and stuff, especially in the math world, where they don't even really need textbooks because they're all, if you're connected within a network, using each other's resources and building out something uh, that's tried and true that works with different types of students. And so there are definitely ways to teach without textbooks at all. And in college, especially, I haven't bought a textbook since my freshman year. Um, other than the intro courses that use textbooks, now it's just all um, selected readings, chapters from 12 different books. And so it's like 12 different chapters that express different things. And yeah, I just I truly don't think we really even need textbooks. Yeah, I think in college I'll have these big, thick books and I think of them as textbooks, but they're not textbooks. They're just like very scholarly works and they're paired with so many different books and so many different articles or readings that we have to do, videos to watch. And it's such a really fruitful way of learning. And I also think it speaks to students' different ways of learning. I think watching videos or movies or doing different different forms of learning is also super beneficial, not even on a content base, but on like a learning how individuals learn um, on the basis of that. But I, I do understand that that obviously is not a streamline. And I think 
the education, the public education system in our country does like things to be streamlined for a variety of different reasons, some of which, you know, are understandable, even if it does result in a lot of problematic issues. But I do think that's why I don't necessarily think it's realistic to hope for textbooks to go away in the future, because I do think that they're a way in which you streamline some education um, in classrooms or at least deliver deliver content and deliver curriculum to students. So I think I I think that like I do think in an ideal world, you know, classes would be geared towards, you know, the way we learn in college, which is so many different sources brought into one and all kind of mixed together. I don't know how you can do that in a public school classroom with kind of like the regulations and guidelines set by school districts and states. But um, I do think that teachers can always like access resources and bring them in. I think that's a great way just to complement the work that's already there. Yeah. I mean, really, like the most important thing is being able to find resources and being able to connect with a larger network of teachers because teachers are undertrained, underpaid, and there's a shortage of teachers. So it, it is unlikely to expect them to go cold turkey from textbooks. But we just got to come together as a community. Right. I like the idea of community. I like the idea of sharing resources. I think that's really great. And I think it's beneficial for for, yeah, for adapting adapting environments and education to be more communal. And um, I think that's great. Yeah. Speaking of all that, I mean, like, it should. I, I think this text, this episode has been like, oh, textbooks are awful. They have this incredible grip on education. But teachers still have a lot of agency. There are tons of lesson plans, uh, a lot published for free that allow tech teachers and students to have honest and truthful dialogue about concepts omitted from textbooks like race and gender. And uh, Dawn has a bunch of free lesson plans. So here are some of our favorites. Uh, the first example, the first lesson plan is uh, the human impact of World War II. This is for grades 11 through 12, and it is also can be tailored towards AP courses. And students will basically develop a more critical understanding of the victims of war and how cycles of violence come to fruition and corroborate different perspectives of the atrocities committed during World War II and how those effects last for a long time. Um, And, you know, this lesson should be precluded with an overview of World War II. This is supplementary material, but it's great material that can have a really fruitful conversation. Yeah. Wow. I, I I think that that gets at something like far greater than anything that we ever learned about in terms of World War Two. I mean, I think with World War Two, it's incredibly complex. It involves like the entire world. Like there's so many different players at play. But I think like sadly, like one of the takeaways that I have from World War Two is like how it put America on this like economic high ground, how it was yeah. so great for the economy. <laughs> And like that is devastating to think about that that's like one of the biggest takeaways that I have. I mean, of of course that's true, but I think the human impact of World War II would have been something that I would have been like very appreciative to learn about. And I I wish that I had something like this in my classroom. I actually like I don't know much about what this lesson plan entails, but I think I'll go I'll go read about it because I think that that's like a really also just like the words human impact. It's a beautiful thing I think to show up in a classroom. Yeah, we always talk about economic impact. Right. <laughs> and I think it's just silly. Another example, and this just speaks to how diverse Dawn's resources are. This is a math, this is a math lesson plan. It's for grades, it's tailored for grades six through eight, but I'm sure it could come up before and after depending on people's level in math. But it's about the Pythagorean theorem and it explores the history of the Pythagorean theorem. So it thinks about the impact of where mathematical theorems come from, and then you also practice applying the theorem which is a squared plus b squared equals c squared which brian had to remind me of um, (laughs) a while ago because i fully forgot but perhaps if i learned the history about it i wouldn't have forgot and it's a really interesting history actually um this is a spoiler alert if you're like going to do the lesson plan and you want (laughs) to hold off to learn until then but Basically, I guess the the theorem is named after Pythagoras, who is a Greek mathematician and philosopher, um, and that he came up with that like about 2,500 years ago. However, 3,600 years ago, there were the same integers written on Babylonian tablets. And this is also true for a 
um, Sanskrit text written 2,800 years ago. So although it's named after Pythagoras, actually other people in other parts of the world were also coming up with these things prior. And it's also so interesting to me how people can come up with, you know, like not come up with, but discover these math math equations and different yeah. parts of the world and have no communication with each other. Maybe they did have communication with each other, but it seems as though these were separate discoveries, which I think is super cool. Yeah, I mean, maybe they were connected. It was a thousand years, but yeah, I feel like it's so Eurocentric to be like, oh, you know, the Greeks, as always. <laughs> um, and then the our, our last little lesson that you should check out is the new Jim Crow for grades 11 through 12. And this is where students will learn about issues pertaining to the war on drugs, race as a construct, and the prison industrial complex. Um, and there's passages to read, there's videos to watch, and uh, discussions. And it's just, I think, completely necessary to have a current understanding of race because so much of this is hidden away from our current textbooks and understandings. And it's always like, you know, it, it feels like racism ended after Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech and that's how it's taught in classes. But it's so, you know, there are so many things going on right now that we should know about going graduating high school. Yeah, this book is incredible if you've never heard of it before. It's by Michelle Alexander, and it's called The New Jim Crow for a reason because it really illustrates how the prison industrial complex today is incredibly reminiscent of the Jim Crow laws that existed in the South. Um, and it draws the line, too, between different instances of racism in our country's history, um, particularly against Black people, but also other people of color, and how 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 there's never been, like Ryan said, there's, ne there's never been an end. It's just kind of this reincarnation in some hidden part of our country's history or current context. And I think that reading about this and educating ourselves on this now will, I mean, I, I just think about how this issue of mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex will be written about in textbooks in the future. It will be. It will be, yeah, and I, I for sure. reading about it doesn't mean now, doesn't mean that to prevent that from happening, but it could potentially make this problem end faster than it could potentially continue for if we don't educate ourselves about it in classrooms. And I, I think I mentioned this in our first episode, but I had never heard the words mass incarceration or prison industrial complex until getting to college. And I think that's incredibly shameful. And if also that, I mean, that speaks to you know, the community that I came from and the privilege that I have as like a white person in a upper class community. But I also just like, I can't believe that it was not somehow mentioned in a government class or a history class or in any conversations. And I think sadly, it's because people within my community fundamentally did not know this. I don't even think it was like mm -hmm. censored from the teachers or the school districts. I think it was because this is not an issue that was just talked about or widely understood at all. So I think it's so important to incorporate this lesson plan into a history classroom. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. And as always, the last part of our conversation is going to be the book segment. And Elizabeth, you can take it away. Yeah, so for our book segment this week, we've done a lot of book drops this entire episode, but <laughs> yeah. this one also, just to tie it back into filling in gaps in textbooks, for me, I read this book earlier this year, and it was such a fundamental book in terms of teaching about things in U.S. history that did not get spoken about or taught about in our classrooms, and the book is Women, Race, and Class by Angela Davis. It was published in 1981, and it, like I said, it's not even conversations that get left out in classrooms, but it's things that you, it talks about issues that you wouldn't even kind of fathom existed because of how many dots are not connected to like get you to these places. I'm not sure if I'm making sense, but I'll give you some <laughs> examples of what the book covers. So the book covers topics such as the livelihood of women who were slaves, the inseparability of the anti-slavery movement from the women's rights movement, 
racism and classism in the suffrage movement, um, the racism that was involved in the birth control and reproductive rights movement and just those instances for black women and women of color and other topics such as black women and the club movement. I didn't know what the club movement was prior to reading this book. She also talks about communist women and Davis speaks of redefining housework and revaluing housework and largely unpaid work that's carried out predominantly by women and women of color. The book also discovers or discusses key historical figures, especially figureheads of the women's rights movement. And I think I appreciated this book so much because Davis paints these figures as full people, as flawed human beings, and as incredible and impressive human beings as well. But she points to a lot of shortcomings and a lot of achievements. She also points to instances in which um, historical figures were able to work together across instances, across like boundaries of race and gender and class. And then she also points to instances in which race and gender and class and political ideologies came before social justice. So I think this book really kind of illustrates to me at least why it's so important to learn history and learn history in a way that discusses flaws in individuals as well as instances and when people really did the right thing or their outcomes were significant because of the actions that they took. And I think that this is something that you don't get a lot in history. Things are very factual and point blank. But when you discuss people as people, which they are, you really realize how relatable they are in a way and how we can take this information and move forward with it. So definitely recommend. You can find this book on one of Dawn's reading lists, the English language arts books reading list um, and Dawn has a few other reading lists for humanities short text and STEM short text which are great places to find resources to bring in any different context to fill in any different things in the classroom or if you're a student um, you can read these works on your own to answer any questions that you might have that you feel like were left out of your education. Yeah and then we also have a special episode coming out next week with Ilyasa Shabazz And that's being interviewed by Victoria Gurum, who is our director of special projects at Dawn. So not by us, but it will be coming out on this podcast. So keep an ear out for that because it touches on so much of what we've been talking about with the textbook industry and how uh, history has been whitewashed and all types of just incredibly insightful conversations. I don't want to say more and spoil it, but yes, definitely check it out. Comes out next week. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Diversify Our Narrative, or you can go to diversifyournarrative.com where you can find resources, educational content, and more. Special thanks to Feel the Ambiances for our music. And don't forget to rate five stars on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify.